Most disabled people were either institutionalised, uh, kept locked in the back parlour, or as my parents were told, oh well you're very young, leave her here, put her in an orphanage, wow. uh, go away and start again. Uh, luckily for me, my parents didn't do that, uh, and with the extended family support, they encouraged me to be as independent as possible. And given my circumstance, and I don't have any arms and legs, that was a brave thing to do. Welcome to Brave Bold Brilliant Podcast. I am here today with the wonderful Rosalie Moriarty Simmons OBE. Did I get it right, Rosie? You did indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise known as Rosie, so it is actually going to be a lot easier for me to call you Rosie than... Yeah, that's fine, that's fine. <laughs> well, listen, I am so delighted that we've managed to get this in the diary. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It's going to be very interesting. It is, it is. And we're here in your wonderful home, which is was incredibly spacious and well adapted. So, Rosie, you have got a huge amount going on. Mm. I was reading your bio, so not only are you, um, you know, a fantastic businesswoman, Lifetime equality campaigner, prolific volunteer, charitable worker, author, actor, media presenter, <laughs> inspirational speaker, and an artist with your mouth and foot painting artist. So, my gosh, you've got a lot going on. It's probably why I'm an insomniac. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> too much going on. <laughs> Absolutely, but listen, Rosie. Honestly, it's it, I'm so um, really privileged to be able to talk oh, to you. All. It's um, it does mean a lot to me. And we met a couple of months ago at the we Cardiff did. Business Club, didn't we? We did. Um, and I was doing a keynote speech, and you were in the audience, and you asked me a fabulous question, which we'll touch on um, later on, if mm. that's okay. Mm -hmm. But before we do. Can you just tell us a little bit about your background, Rosie, and then we'll dig in from there. Okay. Well, I'll try and do it in five minutes, but we could probably have five days in, in, <laughs> in reality. Um, I was uh, born in Cardiff, born in, well, made in Cardiff, born in Cardiff, um, to Irish uh, parents. Um, they you know, came over here looking for work, like many, many people did. Um, obviously, they did not know that they were going to have a disabled child scans and things like that weren't available back in uh, mm. uh, 1960. Um, so I had wonderful parents. They were very young. My mother was only 18 and my dad only 20 when I was born. But we also had great uh, grandparents. And I think that made uh, the difference because most um, disabled people were either institutionalised, uh, kept locked in the back parlour or um, as my parents were told, oh, well, you're very young, you know, leave her here, put her in an orphanage, wow. uh, go away and start again. Uh, luckily for me, my parents didn't do that. Uh, and with the extended family support, they encouraged me to be as independent as possible. And given my circumstance, I mean, I don't have any arms and legs. That was a brave thing to do, really. Mm. So everything that the family did, I was involved in, in that as well. Um, and then, as I say, encouraged me to... My, my first train journey on my own, for example, uh, I can remember, uh, I didn't have mobile phones either, so my mum sort of said, for goodness sake, find a phone and ring me when you get, when you get to your destination. Mm. And then I sort of travelled in a guard's van, um, got to my destination, scrabbled for a, a, a phone and found it and rang her. So that kind of gives you a little bit of an essence of um, how I've got to where I am today, I guess. Um, but the education side was far more difficult. So I had a good positive family, but then um, although I started school when I was about four, four and a half, 
Um, the school that I went to was more like a babysitting service mm. rather than, I mean, there was no expectation of you. Uh, you. You didn't come away with qualifications or anything like that. So that kind of held me back a bit. Plus, spending quite a few years on and off uh, between the age of, well, six months I had my first operation uh, and the last one was when I was about 13, 14. Um, and so not having a good education wouldn't set you up very well for the future. Mm. And that was a huge concern for my parents. So they um, kept fighting for me to have a, a decent one. And it wasn't until when I was about 12, 13, um, oh, sorry, at 11, in the school that I attended, almost as a Mickey take, I think, um, they did the 11 plus. But it backfired on the school because six of us passed. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that's um, something to be, it was quite an important message, I think, out there yeah. to, you know, don't write people, don't write anybody off, really. Mm. Um, and certainly out of the six, two of us were electric powered wheelchair users. So the other four instantly went to the school, the comprehensive school next door, but two of us couldn't. Mm. And then headmasters changed and, uh, he, I suppose, if, if anybody has ever um, done a real good deed for me, it was, it was him, Mr. Crabb. Um, and he kept, had our parents in and said, you know, are you pleased with the education your daughters are getting? Naturally, our parents said no. Um, and he basically pulled all sorts of strings and got us into a school called Florence Trelaw School. It's now changed to Trelaws. But you had the girls' end and the boys' end. And I, after one um, term there, I came home speaking the Queen's English, you know, very, very bad, <laughs> um, which delighted my mother. Um, and it was an absolute turning point because I was only there for about three and a half years. But in that three and a half years, academically, I caught up to my non-disabled peers. And that was really a huge important time in my life and enabled me then to go on. Um, I went to Coventry, to a college in Coventry, again for disabled people, mm. um, and did some more GCSEs and a business studies course. And then I wanted to come back to Cardiff and there was a college of further and higher education. Uh, I attended that for a couple of years and that was kind of took you to about the equivalent of three, three or four A-levels. Mm -hmm. um, and then the a lecturer there again, put a UCAS form in front of me and said, I think you need to go to university. And I just laughed because I thought, absolutely no, I'm not university fodder. You know, that, I don't think that would be for me. And he said, absolutely. He says, but for God's sake, don't do business studies. Not <laughs> 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 that I bad in it, but I just, it wasn't floating my boat. It wasn't yeah. interesting enough. And he said, what are you interested in? And I said, people. I love people. I love watching people. Uh, love the way the group dynamics. He said, well, you need to do psychology. And I'm not embarrassed to say, I had to go look up what the word meant. Mm. You know, many times people have, say, have said things to me and I've stored it in my brain. I had to go research it at a later stage to, to fully understand what it means. I thought, oh, well, this might be interesting. So I'll try and keep it short. But basically, I didn't really want to go and live away again. And that would have been very difficult to sort of study um, and live away and try and find a group of you know, care support to, to help you. So there were two universities that I applied for. Um, one, it wasn't that they didn't accept me, but the interview was one lecturer sat on the corner of a table saying, well, the building's split level, really, so I don't think 
it's going to be any good for you to come here. Um, and then Cardiff University was totally different. It was like applying for a job with NASA because there were about six of them on a panel. <laughs> and, uh, and then they, you know, the, the dean and the, uh, the head of the student union, um, the head of uh, psychology and all the rest of it, quite a long interview. A lot of it was about the practicality. So it wasn't an interview to see if you could go there. That was more subliminal, but it was more, OK, well, we'd like you to come here, but how could we do this? Mm. And it was a huge learning curve for them and a huge for me because, again, I've done lots of firsts, which is a bit bizarre, but the way I look on doing something as the first disabled person to do it is that if, if I can succeed in it, then the doors should be open for other disabled people as well. Mm. So for the university, it was the first time that they had accepted from the outset a disabled person, um, you know, particularly of my level of impairment, um, and who completed the course and came away with a degree in psychology. Wow. So then the battle to get a job. I thought I had a passport in my pocket to the world and I was mightily shocked when I kept sending off application forms and applying for jobs um, and most of them didn't even bother replying. I only ended up with four interviews uh, and one job that I was now way underqualified uh, offered me the job and I was waiting for a letter on the date on which to start the job um, and instead it was a three-page letter which culminated basically in well you can't take yourself to the toilet so we can't give you the job now this had all been addressed at the interview plus it was in a hospital so if you couldn't find somewhere in a in the hospital to sorry you yeah. might want to take that word up uh, <laughs> no, all swearing is welcome <laughs> if you can't find somewhere in a hospital you know, somebody in the hospital to assist you to the loop. But that had all been sorted out anyway. Mm. So that was very frustrating, very upsetting, very annoying. And what have I done all these qualifications for if nobody wants to give me a job? But it was all pre-legislation. Mm. So, oops, accidentally or otherwise, your application form could fall in the bin. So then I tried a different tactic and I kept, I wrote back to many of the other people hadn't bothered replying, and a load of new ones. Um, so 250 job applications later, um, at the later stage, offering to work for them for one month for no pay. And if they felt that I was good enough to, uh, you know, to do the mm. job, then they needed to give me the job. Um, so I think the civil service were the only ones <laughs> who were impressed with that. Um, and that's where I got my first paid job. Fantastic. So we're going to come on to the second half in okay. a bit, Rosie, but yeah. there's loads in here. And as you're talking, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, I've got so I'm just yeah. so curious to, to mm. kind of understand the world from from your perspective, you know. So when you were getting all of those rejections mm. and it was like, no, 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 mm. thanks very much. And there must have been this feeling of sort of it being unfair and unjust mm. and so frustrating, as, as you said. Absolutely. How did you keep your mental kind of positivity during that time because there's probably lots of people that would fall able-bodied or not able-bodied would fall into really quite a dark place mm. with that constant sort of you know yeah. being, being knocked back but how did how did you deal with it do you think, think mentally obviously there were the tears and the tantrums and the why me and woe is me and it's not fair and all, all of those mm. uh, emotions and anger as well 
But I think, you know, anger is a good thing if you turn it into a positive thing. Um, so the anger is, well, I'm not going to let this beat me. I've always been a very determined person. Mm. I'd, I'd always been encouraged by my family to be determined and independent. Um, and so it kind of drove me. Yeah, there were days where I thought, why am I bothering to write this letter? Because I know it's going to be thrown in the bin anyway. Mm. But then at the same time, I'm going to write this letter because I'm going to get a job. Um, you know, somebody's going to have to wake up one day and, and realise that, you know, okay, you might be a, a you know, quite um, severely impaired person, but let's give you a, let's give you a go. Mm. Let's give you, give you that chance. So I think it was the drive and the determination and the fact that, you know, I'd spent all those <laughs> years working that yeah. really, really hard, you know, twice as hard as anybody else. You know, if most people write an essay, they write their notes, um, they may or not bother, they, they may type their essay up or write it Well, I had to type mine up. So, and it with two sticks, like drumsticks back in the day, it didn't have, you know, Siri and all the beautiful gadgets mm. and gizmos that we've got now. And I've, I've got voice activated software on my computer. If I had that then, yeah. I would have come away with the first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've no doubt. I've no doubt. But um, it was... It was very demoralising, but I was also, you know, determined that it would, that somebody would give me a, a job, and yeah. finally, finally, I did get one. Yeah, and it sounds like your parents and your family were mm. were were a real kind of strength of, mm. you know, and behind you, hundred yeah. percent of the way. And can we talk about your about your mum and dad? Because mm. you said they were very young, yeah. as young parents. Yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, I think a lot of people that may be listening or watching, because you're watching it on YouTube as well, um, they won't, not a lot of people don't understand about, you know, thalidomide and, and kind of what happened back then. So are you yeah. okay to maybe yeah. just educate a little bit Absolutely. as well? Because yeah. uh, I think it is really important that, that we understand um, that because that was the situation then, but it could be a different scenario in today's world as well, mm. right, with drugs and, yeah. and et cetera. So... Could you just explain a little bit about that and yeah. then we can maybe touch on how your parents stayed so strong mm. and your memories mm. of, of them yeah. as young parents as well. Okay, so the, the drug thalidomide um, was originated in Germany by a company called Chemie Grunenthal, a family-run uh, business who had been um, providing uh, penicillin for the war effort for the German side of it. And then in this country, in the United Kingdom, there was Distillers Biochemicals Limited, who were given uh, a lot of funding to open up a factory in Liverpool, uh, again to make penicillin for the UK war effort. Um, and then in 1958, in April 1958, um, the same self-same uh, business in this country was given the license by the government so there was no having to apply for it or anything like that they were literally given the license to produce thalidomide in the United Kingdom it was produced in lots of different names so valgrain uh, and uh, distaval as well as thalidomide um, and was supplied in at least uh, 17 different countries but under uh, 11 names and continents rather you know not just you know, so sort of throughout Europe, mm. uh, India, America, although the Americans didn't believe that it got into America, um, the Food and Drugs Administration did stop it, but not before some people had already been affected. And of course, you still had from Canada and America and other countries, uh, people based in Germany. 
So somebody might have uh, conceived, then taken the drug, but the child was born uh, in another country. But basically, um, the drug, if taken within the first three months of conception, at whatever stage the fetus was at the time the tablets were taken, um, everything stopped growing. So it's not just our arms and legs, which the majority of people would know from mm. press cuttings and sure. documentaries. Um, it's all our internal organs as well. So, and some of our thalidomide-impaired family, they may have their arms and legs, but their internal organs were mm. affected even, even worse. So, but after the fetus had completely developed, if it was taken sort of after three or four months, it didn't seem to have an effect. So it's whilst everything was developing. Um, and in this country, it wasn't, uh, the drug wasn't taken off the market until uh, December 1961. Wow. Yeah. Um, now, my sister, Deborah, is only 16 months between us. So she was conceived and my mother could have been prescribed the drug again. Mm. Um, that didn't happen, to my knowledge, but we do have some sets of twins who, who were affected. Um, so yeah, the drug, you know, and ever since then, um, scientists have tried to find another use for the drug, you know, for cancer treatment and all sorts. And whilst it may give, uh, you know, some cancer patients a few extra months, it's never going to cure cancer. Mm. People were also misled in the um, late 80s, early 90s to believe that it cured leprosy. But it didn't, because literally, thalidomide is a sleeping tablet. It's just a sedative at the end of the day. And so it's not going to cure anything. It's just going to give somebody a better night's sleep. And we all know that if we have a good night's sleep, we feel better for mm. it the next day. Mm. So um, that's the drug itself. Um, as I say, scientists have kept trying to find uh, you know, a better version of it or... Uh, thing and it's it's all because it's lucrative. Yeah. Any pharmaceutical industry, uh, they're making billions, and even still, because thalidomide was relicensed for um, multiple myeloma, um, they could charge what they like for it. But when it wasn't licensed, they had to give it free um, to named patients, um, and I would rather it have be available to those who need it, but not for anybody to have to pay for it. Mm. I mean, a massive controversy at the time, and this is before oh. I, I was born in the early 70s, so, mm. you know, my, my partner is similar sort of age to you, so he mm. was around that time as well, you know, sort of born early 60s or whatever. Mm. And, mm. But, yeah, it, it's quite horrifying looking back. You know, and you just think, my God, how could this have been allowed to mm. happen? Yeah, you know? and nobody knew. I mean, I was... Um, my mum was in hospital uh, one of her medical visits while she was having my sister Debbie. Um, and the professor, because obviously because it was such a strange thing and uh, controversy, well, nobody knew about the controversy then, but yeah. she was then under a professor. And he came along with The Lancet, uh, the medical journal, and said, um, "Did you, were you prescribed uh, any form of drugs when you were carrying... Uh, Rosaline, he would have said then. Um, and my mum said, well, yeah, I think so. But, you know, I'll have to check back. Um, and then, sure enough, it was uh, proven that 
the drug were drugs were provided, uh, sorry, uh, prescribed. Yeah. Um, which thankfully she hadn't needed uh, because it was. A, there's a myth that people think it was only given for morning sickness. Ah, okay. It, it wasn't. It was available for coughs, flu, influenza. In Germany, it was available over the counter in those forms. Is that right? And, and I believe in this country. Wow. I and then also, um, if people had post-operative pain, it would be given to give them a good night's sleep. So sometimes it was prescribed to the husband or the male partner. And like we would say, oh, God, it's a terrible headache. We've got anything in the cupboard. We go, we help ourselves to paracetamol. That would have been something similar wow. with thalidomide. And so... They were then, you know, uh, faced with a disabled child, and the mother hadn't been prescribed it, but the father had. Gosh, I, I mean, I'm being educated as well mm, you know, as you're mm. talking, you know, because I always thought, mm. like you said, that you know, it was for morning sickness, it was prescribed to pregnant mm. mums, and mm. but no, yeah. gosh, a lot of people believe that, but it's not the case. Wow. Um, and then in the um, 80s, like I say, they thought it would cure leprosy, but it wasn't. Then other companies have tried to do. Uh, synthesize the drug. I'm not a scientist, but you know, mm, tried mm. to make cousins of it. So tried to take the jackal out of it and leave the hide. Right. Uh, but it's a kind of a bit like mercury; it just seems to come back uh, yeah. together. And so basically, if it has to be prescribed, um, and it's and, and if it has to be prescribed to uh, somebody of childbearing age, mm. then they would have to take two or three forms of contraception, um, and perhaps only have a week's supply. Uh, you know, and appreciate that if they do get pregnant, what the consequences will be? Wow. Because it it will, you know, it would happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you and, and you... it did. Sorry, in um, in uh, Brazil, because the, uh, for leprosy it was prescribed a lot or given uh, to to women. And of course, if you come from the Amazon jungle and you're not literate, and you look on the package, and even though they would have been allegedly verbally told. Um, it's a silhouette of a pregnant woman with a, a bit like the no smoking sign mm. circle and a line through it. Well, by the time that had been taken back to the village and shared, it was, oh, this is a contraceptive. Uh, or, yeah. for those who knew uh, what the consequences would be, again, because of their abject poverty, something most of us and most of the listeners wouldn't be able to comprehend. Um, some of the women did it on purpose to have a disabled child so that they could go begging Wow. with that child yeah it's a dangerous drug absolutely mm -hmm. absolutely and obviously well you're a mum yourself now with mm, your lovely yeah. son James yeah um yeah. who's 28 you were saying he'll be 28 this week unless you don't want to time lapse it'd be almost 28 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what was it like for you becoming a mum oh, yourself gosh. I mean again a lot of our group we when we were born we were written off like mm. most disabled people you know um you're not going to be able to uh, you're not going to have a life, you're not going to um, be able to work, you're not going to be educated, you're not going to have a family, you're not going to have children, da-da-da. Um, and our group has literally gone to prove absolutely everybody completely wrong. Um, and we have amongst us more children than there were thalidomide uh, children. So, um, again, I didn't know if I could see conceive. Um, it was brilliant that we did. Um, carrying James was quite interesting. Um you know, literally, because you, you sat in a chair, you've got a big bump out there. I don't think I've got rid of it yet, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, I blossomed, you know, I had a huge mane of hair, my skin was gorgeous, um, and I, the consultant that I was under, he kept saying, um, 
uh, I think you should have a, a natural birth. And I said, seriously? I said, the only two women that I know in my situation um, who've had children both had uh, cesareans. Mm. You know, I really, really would be happy if you knocked me out <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and hand me a nice clean pink baby. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, and he said, no, 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 I, I'm sure, you know. Anyway, I won't bore you with all of the details, but um, my waters broke on a Wednesday morning and James was finally born the following Thursday night. So it was quite a labour, which then had to be induced and then finally culminated in a, an emergency caesarean. <laughs> but um, I, re I remember, you know, being wheeled from somewhere in the bed and um, bumped on the thing and I kind of woke up a bit and said, oh, have I had my baby? And they said, yes, you've had a little boy. I went, oh, James. And then <laughs> sunk back out again because we agreed on the name. Uh, but they could have told me I'd had a hippopotamus. I would have, <laughs> I would have been equally as happy. But he's, he was a great kid and Steve and I did... Um, you know, good job bringing him up and um, physically changing nappies was entertaining, um, feeding. The only thing I couldn't do at all was to bath him, mm. but I could supervise it and organise it. I avoided the nappy changes as much as I could because I didn't really enjoy being in that close proximity. No. And little boys, you know, when you... Well, they spray to, everywhere. Well, exactly. I've got to say, he wouldn't thank me for this, James, but you, yeah, you take the nappy off and you get an earful. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my word! I mean, it, it almost it sort of went full circle, you know, for you from from sort of your birth to then yes. the birth of James. Yeah. It, it somehow yeah. has a sort of a symmetry around it that's it just incredibly. You know. I mean, sadly, my mother wasn't um, with us. We lost mum when she was only forty nine. She had a, oh. a heart attack, and that's Gosh. that was heartbreaking and very very hard. Um, my dad's still with us, and he's eighty three. Uh, and he, his proudest moment is telling everybody that he was the first one to give James a bottle. <laughs> uh, I had already decided in advance um, that I wouldn't breastfeed, that I would bottle feed for yeah. practical purposes. Sure. You know, to sort of, you know, have to whip your breast out in public um, with somebody else holding the child on would have, you'd have had an audience well, you before, <laughs> before you realised it. So I thought, mm, now let's stick with the, the bottle. <laughs> the bottle uh, instead. Yeah, yeah, oh, fantastic. Well, listen, I mean, thank you for sharing those early years. Um, yeah. Let's talk about some of the things that you've done sort of since getting into that world of work okay. and, the, and the impact you're making now because the podcast is called Brave Bold Brilliant and honestly, it couldn't be a title that's more <laughs> fitting than, than for you, Rosie. Seriously, I mean, it, it really is. So, you, you know, you talked about um, that first role mm. in the civil service. Yeah. What was that job, and then what, what have you done since in the world of work? Because you've done a huge amount of consultancy, haven't mm. you, to help mm. businesses and individuals. So just talk us around about the, the business side of it for a while. So when, when I got the job, and it was nothing related to psychology, um, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll do it for two years, get a bit of work experience under my belt, mm. um, and then go off. But the problem is, when you're used to having a wage come in, um, and with a degree, I'd gone in at middle management, um, so you fast-tracked straight to... Uh, to middle management it was the biggest shock of my life suddenly deciding that you're in this huge not to say but you're in this huge open plan office mm. um, you're a manager of people who are two maybe three times your age um, and people are people and they come in all um, you know personalities and here you are having to sort of perhaps you know give a report to somebody who is perhaps three or four years older you or a report to somebody who is in their late 50s, early 60s. Mm. And, and that was difficult. I mean, I'm good with people, 
but I, that was a huge, huge learning curve. Um, so you start off, uh, it was in company's house, um, and you started off uh, in the post room, uh, which is a great place to learn the whole dynamics of an organisation. Mm. If you start at the bottom and work your way up, that's a good thing, at whatever level you are even, mm. um, because you know all that, you get to learn all the d different departments and things. Um, and then it was on, I was only there for a while because it was more or less, um, well, we, we want to give you the job. This is the only place we can put you at the moment because the vacancy for, for the place we have in mind hasn't become available yet. But when it did, I moved into that and it was, that was more um, interesting because you were dealing with um, you know, the, the legalities of, of businesses and whether they were in breach of uh, companies' legislation and things like that. So did all that and then seven years down the line, it sounds weird, but they were offering redundancies. And by now I really got interested in the disability equality training side of things. Um, so I'm, you know, days off, I um, would perhaps join a couple of other disabled people to deliver workshops. Um, and again, there was a lot of campaigning um, in the early 90s because there were fif uh, 15 attempts to get the disability discrimination legislation through Parliament. And it, there's a, a, a long process, but one of the things is that it gets talked out of time and then it has to go all the way back to the beginning and start all over again. So that's what had happened uh, quite a lot. So it was great going up to London and um, on marches. Uh, and at that stage, I was also doing a bit of interviewing um, for radio and, and uh, the press. So it was really good to be kind of involved, but doing something a bit more nitty gritty mm. uh, with it as well. And then I say the disability quality training. And I suddenly thought, you know, I'm really, really grateful that I got the job at Companies House, eternally to you know the people who made the decisions, but I need to do something far more interesting, yeah. and I need to do something that I'm passionate about. So that's when I made the decision uh, and was granted the um, redundancy package, which helped me to get a computer uh, and a couple of other bits and bobs. And I'd already started delivering disability quality training, but now I could do it far more often. Um, so perhaps you know, two or three times a week doing an all-day workshop um, is is quite um, tiring, but absolutely you know one, one day you could be um, you know with government officials, um, the next day you could be maybe uh, you know the um, with a school, um, mm -hmm. well not so much a school because for school children I've always given talks for mm -hmm. free, um, but I could be lecturing. Uh, it did a lot of visiting, sorry, lecture, got visiting lecture mm. at Cardiff University and other yeah. colleges. So, you, and that could be with dentists or with, um, you know, lawyers, with um, uh, architects, you know, all that kind of thing. Mm. So it was really great to sort of get in at that ground level. But then at the, at the end of the day, if that was just, you know, one lecture at university um, in the whole three-year course, you really have to make an impact mm. because you want these young people who are, you know, the, the employers and the business people of the future to take on board what you've said. So you've got to go in sharp and not shock them in an, in an unpleasant way, but shock them in, into realising that it's not as easy as it is for them. 
um, the access isn't good, transport isn't good, um, you know, attitudes were, were still quite quite negative, yeah. and, and the whole gambit. Um, and so these had to be shooting from the hips mm. kind of um, workshops or lectures. Um, and I absolutely loved it. Loved it. Did it for almost 25 years. Wow. Um, and then times are changing and the legislation, discrimination legislation had come out and uh, people wanted that added, which was okay, but, um, and I would do that element of it. But then in 2010, when um, the Equalities Act came out, and unfortunately, the disability legislation went right to the bottom of the agenda again. Mm. And we literally, you know, it was so frustrated because we just got, uh, you know, it was like the last of the civil rights movements. Mm. Um, and so it was really unfortunate that we got to the bottom of the agenda. And again, all of a sudden people were saying, all right, uh, well, we can't afford an all-day workshop. Can you do it in an hour? Well, it takes you that to introduce the day, for goodness sake. So yeah. I thought, no, I'm not going to compromise what I'm doing, it's either all or nothing. Mm. <clears throat> and so I uh, instead changed over. You, your business evolves yeah. anyway. Yeah. You know, whatever you do, it evolves and changes and has to. Otherwise, it'll get really stale. <laughs> yeah. um, so I now give inspirational talks, which, if I can shut up, will only last an hour. Um, and then, you know, obviously there's questions. I love it when you get asked the question and answer session after. Um, and in 2012, I was accepted to be a, a mouth painting artist. Uh, with, it's a world-renowned cooperative of artists who can only paint with our feet or our mouth. I'm a mouth painter. Um, I'd always loved art uh, right from school. Um, and a friend of mine who was quite high up in the mouth and foot painting artist for years had been nagging me to put a portfolio in because he was at the boys' school mm. at Trelaw's College and I was at the girls' school, but we knew each other because we were both the little mind impaired. Majority of us, have, you know, a good significant number of us known each other since we were babies. Mm. Um, and finally I thought, do you know what, now is the time. I need to do something, you know, a bit more relaxing on the painting side, but still go out and give the talks, still do voluntary work and campaigning. Um, and it all comes into a nice little... A nice little bowl, really, and you yeah. know, it, it's different. Each day is different. Yeah, it's fantastic. And actually, this is one of your wonderful paintings here. If anyone can see, this is a beautiful cushion, which is which you've painted this, and then you've had um, it printed on. Yeah, well, it, it was a ninety centimeter by ninety centimeter Fabulous. silk painting oh, originally, wow. so nice. uh, and it was one of the ones that, unfortunately, the mouth and foot painting artists uh, didn't publish. But when you think you, you know, if you're lucky enough to get an image re produced by them into yes. cards or wrapping paper, there are thousands and thousands for them to choose I bet. from. I bet. Um, and I've been really lucky that I've had seven images published or reproduced in 17 different countries mm -hmm. since, um, although, although I got the acceptance letter in 2012, you don't start getting paid until 12 March 2013, because obviously you've got to put enough paintings in to yeah. justify that. Yeah. So now you get a monthly retainer for, for painting, which is 
Brilliant. Fantastic. Yeah. So what I'm, what I'm hearing here, Rosie, mm. is multiple streams of income. <laughs> oh, oh, <yeah. laughs> lots, of, lots of great things yeah, that you're really yeah, incredibly yeah. passionate. I mean, you're very mm. values driven, aren't you? You know, you've got a strong purpose mm. um, to wanting to make the world a better place for, for other mm. people as well, mm. um, as well as, mm. as well as, you know, for you to enjoy your life along the yeah. way. Right. That's that's so important. Absolutely. And, and, you know, when you when you decided to write the book. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so your book, mm -hmm. Four Fingers and Thirteen toes Tell it so it yeah. yeah it was published first in 2007 june mm -hmm. 2007 then republished in 2009 yeah so what was the catalyst for you writing the book okay um again it was my mum you know you know, you're sitting there you're sitting around the table having a laugh and you recount stories um or you know we were both very concerned that the story about thalidomide needed to be told. Mm. And, you know, for years and years, she kept saying, oh, you really should write a book. You really should put this in writing, didn't you? I think, yeah, yeah, you know, I've got time. Um, but then when I was at university, when when I did it, you did your main subject, um, but then you had to do one added-on subject, something where it could be kind of related, but needed to be different enough. So I um, studied uh, sociology of law. Um, and instead of sitting an exam for that, you could do um, an extended essay. So I did an essay all about thalidomide and the history of it. And it was so cathartic because I learned things that I didn't know mm. about. I mean, my parents could tell me the answer, the, what they knew. And when James was little, I was able to explain to him, you know, what was relevant for him at that age. Because quite often he would get asked, by older kids, you go, why, why did you mind when you got two fingers in there? Yeah. And, I don't know, because he didn't care, because it didn't matter to him, because we were just mum and dad. Yes. And yeah. kids don't see it, mm. but other kids did. So, obviously, we had to do, you know, things, you go into the school and talk to the kids about it, um, which was great. Um, so, I then thought, well, do you know what? Some of the parents had written books, some lawyers had written books, a number of journalists had written books. Um, but there hadn't been a book actually written by a thalidomide-impaired person at that stage, mm. or certainly not one that hadn't been ghostwritten. So I decided to do one, and it was such hard work. You know, on top of your business, on top of everything else you're doing, on top of bringing James up, I thought, you know, at times I thought I'd gone mad, yeah. um, or I was mad. And it took 20 years, actually, from... The time I started with just little notes and thoughts and memories and chatting to family, you know, chatting to other people. Um, and then it all finally comes together in the way you focus, you know. And you kind of do it by chapters, but you don't really at that stage know where you're going to start. Mm. So my book actually starts with James's birth. Okay. And yeah. then I go back. So when the first chapter is about my life story. And then the subsequent chapter is about the history of thalidomide. Mm. So it's it's not just an autobiography and it's not just a history book. And that's where the difficulty came in publishing because lots of publishers, you know, again, it was, oh, no, we're back to the applying for jobs syndrome. Doesn't quite fit yeah, into a neat little exactly, box. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It yeah. doesn't fit into a just history and it doesn't mm. fit into just um, autobiography. So the publisher come back and say, it's great, but sorry, we can't publish it. Um so in the end, uh, I published it through Author House, cool. self, you know, self-publishing yeah, house, and it's still with them. But the first lot sold out straight away. 
But then an interesting thing happened and I received a letter um, from a lady who turned out to be the doctor that delivered me. No. Yeah. And I th couldn't believe it. And I sat on that letter for a couple of months. She put a telephone number in and all the rest of it. And I thought, I, I just didn't know whether this was, it's a terrible thing to say, a stranger wanting to kind of be involved or whether this person was genuine. Mm. And she didn't have any social media presence or anything like that. So it was very difficult to find, find to get to the bottom of it. So I plucked up the courages one day and said, just leave you stay in the kitchen as well so you can take over just in case, you know. Well, once we started talking, it was just amazing. And the things that she was able to tell me, she had to have been there to know. Right. Um, and so she was only um, about 18 or 20 and doing her rotations as a trainee doctor. And, and she had me born on, on her night, you know. So, wow. Uh, yeah. Um, so that was great. So Because they were... You know, my mum's recollection of, of my birth, lots of it was accurate, but none of us had realised how poorly my mum was. Right. She, um, she had um, toxemia. Oh, and so she'd been in hospital for about a month before I was born anyway. Um, but, you know, thank goodness she, she was okay after it. But um, it was just to hear from somebody else who was actually there in, in the operating theatre, sort of, reinforced, not operated there, but the you know, Labour, Labour Theatre, mm. uh, reinforced a lot of what Mum had said, but then gave me information, um, more information. Um, and so I, that's why I republished it then, um, with that added into the book. So, wow, that's mm, amazing, isn't mm. it? And I, I, I suppose the thing is, you never know who's watching, listening, nope. who you might inspire, nope. just whether it's yeah. on social media or TV or yeah. through a book. And you, even if you just reach one person, yeah, then that's incredible, isn't it? Well, but what a person it. to reach through, so, through the uh, book. So Valerie, the Dr. Valerie Davis, she said that my mum said, I'm going to give her a, a name that people will remember, which is you know, Rosaline. Mm. But I use Rosie primarily because most people don't pronounce Rosaline. <laughs> well, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they go, Rosaline, Rosaline, Rosaline. Go, no, it's Rosaline. You know, but anyway, um, but most people find Rosie easy, and I'm not worried about that. But uh -huh. in, in my paperwork, I would put Rosaline. Rosaline yes. um, and she said, I, Dr. Valley said, I always remembered that name. She said, I followed your progress through newspaper cuttings and documentaries and things like that. And she said, for many years, I'd wanted to get in touch with you. And so when she finally did, that was... Uh, you know, very interesting story, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, very spe mm. and special. What a special kind mm. of, you know, moment for both yeah. of you, really. And yeah, mm. incredible. Mm. So so what have you found the most challenging time mm. during your life, do you think, Rosie? Oh, I right. mean, I know mm. you've had loads. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but well, any particular uh, standouts or, um, or periods think, which were I think difficult? standouts are that, um, you know, some people, even in this day and age, um, their attitude can be negative towards disabled people. Yeah. Or their um, perceptions of what disabled people can or cannot do mm. um, don't always marry up. Um, or their understanding that, you know, they really should be employing a lot more disabled people than, than they are. Um, because if you do employ a disabled person, we come with skills that the, the non-disabled people don't have. Yeah. We, you know, we have to be very organised um, we have to be brutally honest. Um, we, we, you know, are very loyal as well. 
mm. um, and trying to get that across to employers, um, that was quite difficult um, mm. because they go, oh, yeah, yeah, you can say that, but it's not the case. Um, but, you know, for example, not in a million years would I have thrown a sickie because I woke up with a hangover. Mm. You know, I would have gone in if I was dying. Yeah. Um, but some people, some young, younger people might, and, and still in this day and age, I mean, slightly different now that a lot of young people are on zero hours contracts, and so they're not going to be loyal mm. to, to an organisation. But, um, you know, if you do want to build up um, a rapport in, in, in a company that you're, you're working for or whatever it is you choose to do, you know, you, you have to be honest, you have to be trustworthy, um, you have to be flexible, um, you have to work damn hard, mm. um, but you need to be loyal to that organisation as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, uh, so attitudes, but access is, oh my goodness, where do I start? I'm not, it's not just buildings, it's access to information, it's access to transport, um, public transport in particular, mm. um, access to buildings. And, you know, some, I've even known people put steps in because they think it's prettier than a ramp. And you think, no, yeah. you know, if you put a ramp in for a wheelchair user, and I'm not saying that all disabled people are wheelchair users, no. but if you do a, put a ramp in, then it's great for parents with buggies. It's great for the delivery people because they can use the ramp as well. Mm. And only yesterday I was in, in town and for a long time I've noticed that the automatic doors are the ones that the majority of people go through rather than the doors that they have to push by themselves. Mm. And so if all doors were automatic, that would be brilliant. If all buildings were accessible, that would be brilliant. And there wouldn't be this excuse then of denying uh, disabled people. Yeah, yeah. And we talked, I remember when, when, when I was doing this speech at the Cardiff Business Club mm. and you asked, again, the q and I, I love getting a Q&A. Uh, in particular, I get, a tough, I get a tough question, I like that. Um, but you asked me a question around travel mm. and overseas travel in particular and mm. airlines mm -hmm. and, you know, what? basically we're not doing a great job. Mm. Um, and there's lots of problems around, in particular, like you were saying, electric wheelchairs mm. that get damaged mm. when you come off a flight, you're left sitting on a flight for too long, mm. you know, all of these kind mm. of challenges. Um, and I thought that was a, a fantastic question. And you're right, you know, we're not doing, we're not doing anywhere near as good mm. a job as we should do. So in an ideal world, whilst we've made lots of changes and improvements in general, mm. access being one of the things, but if you had a wish list of, I don't know, three things, <laughs> say, that you would really want to see in your lifetime change, right. okay. what would they be? Oof, the, all public transport, whether that, you know, planes, trains, automobiles, taxis, mm. um, were fully accessible to all disabled people. Yep. Um, you know, most cities want to make them, you know, pedestrianised, and not, you know, for us not to be driving our cars. Well, until you make everything accessible for everybody, that's not going to happen. You're not going to meet that quota. Mm. Um, I think for, in terms of, you know, visually, because loads of people have hidden impairments, yeah. and I've actually got more hidden impairments than I've got obvious impairments. Um, but people with hidden impairments do find it difficult to come out and be open and honest about those impairments because they see the kind of discrimination that other people mm. uh, with obvious impairments have faced. Um, so for people, you know, for employers to be more um, willing to, uh, willing and opening, open to uh, employing um, 
disabled people, whatever their impairment yeah. is. Um, but to do that, yes, they might be a little bit of a cost. Um, it might mean you know having an accessible toilet and an accessible building, but it might just be something as small as putting a few blocks under a desk yeah. to raise it up. It, it isn't always going to cost mm. uh, a lot of money. Um, and then I think um, general attitude... Um, the younger we can educate children in terms of you know impairment and disability, it's not a bad thing, it's not a negative thing, um, the better. Yeah. Because they then grow up realising, oh, it isn't a big thing. You know, when James was little and I pick him up from nursery, he would just jump on the back of my chair um, and have a little ride. And the next week before I'd know it, it'd be like the Pied Piper because all the kids in nursery <laughs> wanted a ride on the back. <laughs> yeah. you? My great niece is now doing it. You know, yeah. she, she suddenly, you know, she was able to get up or, or some sort of somebody lifting her up and she was able to get up on her own. But then she go, oh, I can't get off. Now she can. <laughs> and then she'd jump on the back and go, 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 go. You yeah. know, and, and, and that's brilliant. Um, but I think, again, f- that it has to perhaps start with the media mm. and with... Um, television, um, you can't see us on radio, so that won't make a great deal of difference. But the visual impact, both in dramas, and it doesn't have to be the main character. Mm. You know, it could be a walk-on part, it could be in the background. Um, and really, the soaps, only perhaps the past five to eight years, have started doing that. Mm. Um, but in Wales, for example, 24% of the population are disabled people. Not all of them, granted, are going to have obvious impairments. Yeah. But when it's a visual thing and, you know, people get used to seeing disabled people, mm. you know, on television, as presenters. You know, when I was delivering the disability equality training, I would say, you know, we will almost have cracked it when an obviously disabled person reads the news. Yeah. Okay, we've got a few newsreaders now, but they were journalists and newsreaders before. Mm. What we need are people to be able to come into the industry. Yeah. You know, and then you know, as characters in, in soaps and films, you know, Matt Fraser is a great friend of mine and he's doing a really brilliant job of um, you know, in his acting career. Uh, and, and loads of others, Liz Carr and, and lots of others. But again, it's it needs to be a lot more. Yeah, it's almost normalising it, isn't it? If mm. that's the right, maybe that's not the right word to use, but mm. to say, you know, twenty four percent of just people. just to be there and people not for it not to be. Oh, look, there's a disabled person in that. Yeah, it, for it to be natural. Absolutely, natural. absolutely. Yeah. And you know, and it, it frustrates me actually because I think whether we're talking about, you know, I'm a massive advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion of all of all mm. levels, whether it's gender, whether it's culture, race, sexuality, disability. You know, it really mm. doesn't. For me, it should be around equal opportunities for all, right? Mm. Um, and employers are missing out because they're missing out on talent. Yeah. And as you say, you mm. know, everyone has something valuable mm. to mm. offer, right? Mm. But they're also mm. missing out from a consumer point of view, yeah. right? Definitely. And there's a lot, I don't mm. like the term myself, Rosie, and I'm not sure if you do, but you know, the purple pound, <laughs> which everyone talks about. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it, it trivialises, um, I think, to a certain yeah. degree, but actually, it's commercial. Makes commercial yeah. sense. Well, if you, you think, if you think about <laughs> with, with every one disabled person, more often than not, but not exclusive, but mm-hmm. more often than not, another person comes with them. So, I just an, an analogy that I used to use um, back when I was training was: um, if you've got a coach load of of people, and 
there's one wheelchair user, um, somebody else who uses a Zimmer frame, and perhaps somebody else who uh, walks on crutches, mm -hmm. um, somebody else dragging uh, an oxygen tank behind them, um, and they pull up at a restaurant, and the restaurant says, oh, sorry, we're not accessible, or we haven't got the space, or we haven't got the... So that 52-seater bus is going to turn around and go elsewhere and yeah. take their business elsewhere. Mm. So it's false economy. You know, so if you don't pay out um, you know, to make these facilities uh, you know, for disabled people, the others that come with you, mm. it could be just one family with a disabled child or adult, you know, parent or grandparent, mm. um, they're only going to take their money where they can use it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think more and more, I, mean, I don't know if you're seeing this, I think it's organisations that are quite purpose-led. You know, mm. consumers more and more are choosing to either work for companies or to buy goods and, you know, mm. services from those companies that stand for something, that are making a difference, doing the right thing, yeah. you know, in the world, whether that's mm. from a disability point of view or from a, I don't know, creating employment mm. or whatever it might be. Mm. And um, and actually, I think people, consumers vote with their feet much more now. They're much more mm. well-educated. Mm. You know, so so yeah, I, I I'm I'm hundred percent with you, hundred yeah. percent with you. And, you know, going back to you know your your previous industry, flying. Mm. Um, you know, for for me, alone to now fly would mean I'd have to have two non-disabled people with me. Yeah. Um, they would have to be guaranteed that the aisle chair would be left on the airplane if I needed to get to the loo. It would be very cosy in there because they're not big enough. Mm. Um, and and it's just physically difficult to, to try it. On top of that then, you, you're sitting on the plane and you see your, your electric wheelchair on the runway. You think, are they going to remember to put it on? Because literally, it would be like sending you off flying without your legs. Yeah. You know, you think, how the hell are you going to get around at your destination? And I mean, when Steve and I quite often laugh when we think about some of the places that we've both gone. So my husband and I, both wheelchair users, and then James, a non-disabled person, and we, we've been to America with him twice. Um, and we you know, went up from one end of Manhattan to the other in our electric powered wheelchairs or on the buses. Mm. Because in America, they stop a bus, um, everybody disembarks. And before they let anybody else on, they put the wheelchair users on. They strap you into within an inch of your life, even if you go in two stops. Mm. And then they allow everybody else on when the space is available, with whatever space is available. Because two wheelchair users couldn't find, or we couldn't find, an accessible taxi in New York for love and money. Mm. There are all those uh, yellow, yes. what do you call it, cabs. Yeah. Um, so there's so many things that need to be a lot more of. Um, and at one stage, getting taxis in this country was virtually impossible because, of course, we go to bed at eight. Mm. We don't go out in the night. We don't go out for a meal. Or we, you know, young people don't go clubbing um, or, any, or, or wedding parties or anything like that. So you don't need a wheelchair accessible taxi after eight o'clock at night, mm, do yeah. you? No. You know, I've flagged police down before now to, to try and get me um, to get a, a taxi home. Um, and when they failed, I jokingly said, but kind of half meant it. Um, so if I smash a window, you'll get a van and I'll be able to get home at some stage then. Luckily, I didn't. It was one of those, mm, shall I, shan't I, this is what I'm thinking, but I better not because I'm supposed to be a well-behaved person. <laughs> <laughs> but you've, you've got a very valid point, yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's the lack of thought um, is, and lack of education yeah. is quite often uh, the, the problem. Mm. Not, it's certainly not the disabled person. We're not the problem. And that's where 
there's a social model and a medical model. Mm. And the medical model is um, that you are a, a disabled person, you've got medical issues, um, and a bit like a jigsaw piece, we've got to fit you into society the way it is. Yeah. Whereas the social model of disability, and this is a whole day's training in two <laughs> seconds now, um, uh, the social model turns it completely on its head and says, no, it's society and the built environment and the attitude and everything else, like that, that's the problem. Mm. And unless you alter that, you know, we won't be living in an accessible world. So the social model is to change society, change society's attitude, change the environment um, and the procedures and everything, policies and procedures, um, so that everybody can um, enjoy an equal opportunity. Yeah, 100%. And like you were saying earlier, you know, putting a ramp in to, mm. to make a building accessible is not mm. only good for someone who's in a wheelchair, it's mm. great for, for mums, for it's everyone. great for delivery yeah. guys, yeah. etc., or girls, you yeah. know, so so yeah, you're absolutely right. It's almost flipping the, on its head, isn't it, mm. actually, and not yeah. seeing this as a problem, yeah. but seeing it as an opportunity. Oppor- absolutely, that's exactly it. Yeah. It's got to be reframed, hasn't mm. it, in everyone's yeah. mind. So, Different um, mindset. Yeah, definitely. And it's great to be able to talk, have conversations like this mm to be honest you know because the more that we can get the messages out the the better um the world's going to be isn't it Mm. so before we we kind of come i could could talk for hours and hours but i think you're a good talker so am i (laughs) as a competition competition, (laughs) but i want to talk about your obe all right and i also want to talk about the um high sheriff as well so let's go with the obe first if that's all right um came totally out the blue had absolutely no idea um and a huge honour, um, and it was basically for my services to equality and rights for disabled people. Mm-hmm. And somebody along the line somewhere recognised that and decided that they would put me forward for, for an OB, um, and I went to Windsor Castle on the uh, 17th of July, uh, ni- uh, 19, uh, 2015, no, 1915, <laughs> what a moment, 2015, um, and I was lucky enough that the Queen presented me with my OBE, and she was just amazing, she had the most beautiful blue eyes, peachy skin, and made you feel that you were the most important person in the room for that 30 seconds mm-hmm. that you were there. I mean, any honour of that nature, it, apart from being a huge honour to you personally, it's a great way of opening doors. So it meant that I could go and do even more things for disabled people. I mean, I'm lucky, as you know, I have a voice and I'm not afraid to use it. Um, And any opportunity that I can uh, utilise to to make positive change, then I will. Mm. You know, I I mentor a number of young disabled people. um, Always there if they need a phone call or or an email or, you know, a bit of information or advice. And that's really important to me as well. So, but having the OBE, then you are then approached by other people. Mm. Oh, you know, would you be a patron of this? Or would you uh, be a trustee of that? Um, and so in that respect, um, it's, it's been brilliant as well. It's really nice gong to have, mm. but the fallout from that is that you can use it in a positive way. Mm, yeah, amazing, huge Which honor. is really important. Yeah, were you nervous going to get your OBE? I was a bit. I was. I've never ever been starstruck. I've been fortunate enough to have met really, you know, some really famous uh, and interesting people. Um, I, I met Shirley Bassey in a Chinese restaurant in Monte Carlo, for God's sake. It's so. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, that's that just one, you know, <laughs> interesting person, um, and another story for another day. But um, 
meeting the Queen was the only time that I was ever starstruck. And again, I'm not usually stuck for words. But when you're in the line-out, I was suddenly thinking, oh, my God, what, what if she asked me a question and I completely dry up? Or, yeah. And she does ask, it did um, ask three or four questions. And fortunately, I was able to answer them. Mm. But for a while after, I, I couldn't remember. My mind went blank. Because <laughs> my sisters and you know, my dad and uh, Stephen James came up and they went, what did she say to you? What did she say to you? I went, hmm, I don't know. I, don't, I literally don't know. But I'll remember at some stage, and I did, but, you know. Uh, what did she say to you? Oh, well, it Can was you mainly say? about, you know, sort of um, what... Um, sh- she would obviously have set questions for certain things. So if mm, you're a sports mm. person, it'd yes. be sports-related. Yeah. So she knew it was for disability, uh, equality issues. So she asked me what, you know, what I did, yeah. how long I've been doing it, um, and a couple of other questions. Amazing. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. So great, great yeah. chance to share with her as oh, well. Yeah, that was a more private moment. Definitely. Just yeah. that brief fleeting. You know, yeah. who you know, had not that many people actually get to meet meet the monarch and no. that close. You know, as close as you and I are at the moment. Amazing. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Well, huge congratulations. Thank and very you, well very deserved, much. of course. So let's talk about the high sheriff now. <laughs> I'm not sure. Is this a Welsh thing, High Sheriff, or yeah. is this? A, yeah. Because I've heard about this before, right? Um, and uh, but then when I was reading on your bio that you were the High Sheriff of South Glamorgan mm. recently, actually, twenty April twenty two to April twenty three. Yeah. Talk yeah. us about that. What's the role? Okay, so it's <laughs> um, again you are nominated by a panel of people, um, and that would include whoever the current High Sheriff is for that. You know, at the time you're appointed, mm. because you're appointed and you know about it, you're asked to do it about three or four years before you actually have to do it. Okay. Um, so basically you are um, the monarch's judicial representative, so supporting all the blue light services, uh, entertaining judges, you can sit in court with the judges. Um, it's obviously evolved over the years. I mean, way, way back, you were responsible for collecting taxes and hanging people, which sadly were no longer responsible. <laughs> That's a joke, by the way. Um, <laughs> before you get lots of emails. Um, but it's a fascinating role that in, it, you get to, um, for, for all faiths as well, you can support and be involved in and bring together all the different faiths. Mm. You can... Um, you visit lots of charities and organisations and give profile, perhaps to those that are lesser known. Mm. Um, you can give the High Sheriff Award Certificate, which was one of my favourite elements. Um, and again, this country would literally fall apart if it wasn't for volunteers. Mm. Uh, and that could be people, you know, growing vegetables and putting them in food packages and, you know, giving them to people who are struggling you know, to put a decent meal on the table. It could be um, you know, fire officers who, you know, the biggest part of their work is educating. But yes, occasionally you do have to run into a burning building mm. and save lives. So I managed to do that. Um, with the ambulance service, again, they, they served, saved uh, the life of somebody. So I was able to go along primarily to see who the people are that actually clean the ambulances. So the, the, the technicians who supply, uh, sorry, uh, put all the supplies into the ambulance and keep them clean are the unsung heroes. Mm. We don't get to hear hear about them. So my year was was primarily promoting and supporting and visiting the unsung heroes. 
people who've never been recognised. That was my favourite element. Um, but then you, you, one day you could be visiting asylum seekers and the next day you could be the Lord, with the Lord Chief Justice. Mm. Um, you know, one day you could be... Well, one of the other elements is that you support the Lord Lieutenants when royalty visit. And obviously the Lord Lieutenant is the first person to greet them as they get out the car and you're the next person down in the pecking order so you get to meet and greet them, um, literally the handshake and the thing. And that was an interesting one. I thought, should I or shouldn't I? Should I put my hand out for it to be shaken or should I just smile and all the rest of it? And I thought, no, I think I think the royals would, would shake my hand. Mm. And I can confirm that they did, all of them. Um, and I, I met... Um, a number of uh, the royal family throughout my year. But of course, the other element was that um, I got excited during my year knowing it was the Platinum Jubilee. Yeah. And I opened um, the, the garden party in, uh, around the corner where we've got a, a housing association um, and there were a lot of older people there. So we had a party over there and they asked me to open it in, in all my uniform and everything. Um, but also... Um, Sorry, I forgot what I was going to say then. I was talking about the... The Jubilee opening. You the Jubilee, would, yes. And the, the Queen passed away. Yes. So you had the proclamation. Mm. Now, in the four main cities, so like London, um, Edinburgh, Belfast and Cardiff, you don't, as the High Sheriff, read the proclamation um, in the county, but in every other county, in the 55 counties uh, in uh, England and Wales that have a High Sheriff... Um, and it changes every 12 months. And so I just happened to be a high sheriff on the year that the Queen passed, and then we had the King, mm. uh, his uh, first visit to, to Cardiff as well. So mm. it was fascinating. The whole thing, absolutely fascinating. And I got involved in over 200 events, so it was exhausting. Wow, yeah. But, but you know, and you only get, ever get to do it once. So as the, you know, the first um, born and obviously disabled person, that was really interesting. So during the proclamation, it was beamed all around the world. And so in terms of, for disabled people, I had hundreds of emails and, uh, you know, inbox messages on my social media and everything saying, wow, it was fantastic to see an obviously disabled person in that kind of role, um, you know, as a role model. And I don't, use that sentence about myself comfortably because mm. I don't necessarily see myself as a role model but I see myself as um, a person who likes to make change uh, you know for disabled people so you've got a platform like that wow it, it it was really great to hear from your fellow disabled people that they thought that it was important yeah, 100%. Well, what an honour. What an honour and, and, and an amazing yeah. experience for you yeah. as well, personally. And yeah. to be able to be that. I know you say you don't like to describe yourself as a role model, but mm. whether you like it or not, you clearly are. <laughs> so so that, that goes mm. without saying. But yeah, fantastic. So, Rosie, can you when you think through your very colourful life, yes. um, of which you've had lots and lots of experiences, can you think of the, a really good piece of advice or the best piece of advice that you've been given that's kind of really stood you in good stead? Mm. Um, don't give up if you've got a plan or a passion or a desire to do something whether that's in the in business um, or in 
you know, a hobby or something challenging to you, don't give up on it. Um, because, you know, eventually you will do it. But if you sit back, n nothing is ever handed to you on a silver plate. So don't give up. Work hard because it will take you a lot more effort and energy just even to do a boring daily task, mm -hmm. never mind something complicated. Mm -hmm. um, but also, I think, um, well, I've, I've got a motto and it's on my coat of arms because one of the things when you become a high sheriff, you can have your own coat of arms. Um, and, and it's a, a quote that I've used all of my life and it's, there is no such word as can't. Oh, I love that. Absolutely, yeah. what a brilliant And, and that's been something I've lived by that, you know, if somebody else turns around and says, you can't do that, I'll say, oh, just watch. <laughs> just, just watch, I'll do it. It might take me two days, it might take me 20 years, but I will do it. Um, and I'll find a way of doing it and I'll find the right like-minded people to assist me to do it. So that's, you know, that would be, you know, a good quote I think that a lot of people could take, you know, there is no such word as can't. Mm, that is wonderful and massively inspiring. So yeah, I've got a goose pimply I have oh, as you sorry. were talking. No, in a, in a really good way. Yeah, I think it's yeah, wonderful. Yeah. So the podcast is called yeah. Brave, Bold, Brilliant, as you know. And right. we've talked a lot about your bravery and your brilliance and mm. kind of talk about be, kind of pushing out and, and mm. you know, making an impact. But when you hear that, Rosie, mm. what does it mean to you? The brave bit, I think for me, would be when you take that bold step, Let's take Business Club, Cardiff Business Club, where we first met. Mm. For years, I'd wanted to go to Cardiff Business Club, but it was originally held in a not-too-accessible hotel. Uh, then I got to hear that they had moved. I thought, oh, now might be the time, you know, to, 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 to join. And then all of a sudden, it was Steve was driving, he dropped me off outside, and I said, just hang on five minutes, <laughs> just in case you see me scuttling out the door again. Because I suddenly realised, you know, the... Apart from your average business people, at that, at that time, certainly, the, the great and the good of, of Cardiff, South Wales, you name it, not just the business world, but, you know, politicians and, you know, people with mega titles and all the rest of it. And I suddenly thought, what am I doing here? You know, why, why, why have I come here? What's the purpose of it? Will they accept me? Will they be totally, you know, scared stiff of me or what um I very nearly backed out and I thought no I've got to be brave um and I've, I've got to do it and and I've had to do that on numerous occasions mm. you know being an obviously disabled person wheeling into a room full of highfalutin people um and making your mark and you know you, you then have to make other people feel comfortable you've got to be you know jolly and chatty and all the rest of it. And then eventually, I mean, so many people say to me, wow, when I first saw you, I thought, oh, poor little thing. She can't do a great deal for herself. And now it's like, I don't even remember that you're disabled. Mm. And that's when you know that you've won them over. So, yeah. so that's the brave element. What was the second? Bold Bra and brilliant. Bold. Well, again, I suppose it's similar. It's being bold enough to believe in yourself. Mm. Um, other, others will believe you, but there'll be a far more who won't. Um, um, so you have to believe in your self-worth and believe that you're capable of doing it. And don't, don't, don't be silly and think, right, okay, I want to be an astronaut if physically, emotionally, 
and financially you could never become an astronaut. So only aim for the goals that you can, but be brilliant at them. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Fantastic. Well, listen, you have certainly made your mark in this world and you will be continuing to do that, Rose. I have no doubt. I can't wait to hear what's going to be next in your journey. Oh, who knows? I'll let you know. <laughs> when I know. Well, we'll have you back on the podcast again for sort of, you know, round two when uh, when we see the next next uh, part of your journey. But thank you, Rosie. You've You're been amazing. You're welcome. Thank you, Janet. I really hope you've enjoyed Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review.